There are no more barriers to cross. All I have in common with the uncontrollable and the insane, the vicious and the evil, all the mayhem I have caused and my utter indifference toward it, I have now surpassed. My pain is constant and sharp, and I do not hope for a better world for anyone. I want no one to escape. But even after admitting this, there is no catharsis. My punishment continues to elude me, and I gain no deeper knowledge of myself. This confession has meant nothing. Bonjour, monsieur and mademoiselle. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Nick's Nonfiction here with your host, Nick Munez. On this week's edition, we have our first French author, Albert Camus, with his breakthrough novel, The Stranger. My first Camus as well, an absolute mind buster as we are entering the realm of absurdism today. I might have botched that name. If you guys remember this book, The Stranger from High School, as American education referred to him as, Albert Camus, this guy literally invented the genre of absurdism. We read some Dostoevsky last week. He is the French Dostoevsky. You are a huge nerd. <laughs> this is going to be a more positive show than Dostoevsky festering in his basement talking to an imaginary audience. This is a positive spin on that nihilism existentialism. Albert the French cigarette-smoking, horizontal shirt-wearing, wine-drinking, baguette-boofing. Yes, you put baguettes in your ass in France. The lady killer Camus, he wanted to write about the nakedness of man faced with the absurd. He puts normal people in extreme positions. Camus is the first sitcom writer. If you call him a nihilist and existentialist, he will denounce that. He does not want to be grouped in with those sad boys. Absurdism, Camus is going, yeah, life has no meaning. So what? He's the creator of Just Go With It. What happens in The Stranger? A normal man is put on trial for murder, the highest life or death situation. Written in Camus's sitcom fashion. George, I think I'm on trial for manslaughter. You know, Jerry, you can't spell slaughter without laughter. I'm sure Larry David, all the sitcom writers, have read their Camus in their days. For those of you interested in the plot, we are putting Madame Wissot on trial for a family friend. An Arab man died in town, and someone has to pay the price. Fun little novella takes place in the streets of Algeria, living a very French lifestyle, as the author Albert Camus did. Let's learn about this author a little bit. Claimed by the French, but really born Algerian, which is a country in North Africa. You know all those North African countries got imperialized, colonized by Europe in the early 1900s. Right when Albert was born, 1913, he was born to a working-class dad, working blue-collar jobs to put him through the University of Algiers. Camus was a hard-working kid on his own. He played in some high-level soccer tournaments and always had a job in an automotive shop to help pay for his education as well. He made a name for himself writing in Algeria, coming up while in school, writing about oppressed Muslims by the government doing a little investigative journalism of his own. In 1935, he moved to France, all finished up with school, and he ran a theater. 
He got three years out of that until France went Vichy. The Nazis took over. World War II hit. It was called the Theater Théâtre de l'Épique. And it featured actually some of Dostoevsky's plays. Camus always wanted to write his own plays, so he's just putting himself in the orbit. During World War II, when he had to give up the theater life, just prancing around while people are getting shot, he became the editor for Combat, which was a French resistance magazine. (laughs) They're still protesting over in the streets of Paris. They're allowed to have magazines about resisting. Rupert Murdoch owns every magazine in America. As uh, Camus' career went on, he came to reach his goals. He had a few major plays that made it to the stage. The Stranger has a onstage interpretation. Then his later works, The Plague, The Fallen Exile, and The Kingdom. And again, The Stranger is his breakthrough piece from 1941. The title of this book, which a lot of people don't know, actually translate in English more accurately to The Outsider. And it makes sense if you know the plot of The Stranger. He's more of an outsider, the way he feels so cut off from society, not a stranger. But what do we have in America? Stephen King claimed The Outsider already with an HBO show. That (laughs) trumps classic literature. Camus's most famous essays, not just plays, came throughout the 1950s. I have this book on my reading list. It's on the way, The Myth of Sisyphus. He has his own interpretation about that old Greek myth of, man, we are just doomed by the gods to push the boulder up the hill, and it falls back down, rolls us over, and we push that rock right back up the hill, and you learn to love pushing that motherfucking boulder. Other big novel of his was The Rebel. And he actually won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1957. People expecting that to be his his uh, best book. He was in his prime in 1957. I was watching a documentary and they were saying he always had three girlfriends at a time. He's got those French bloodlines. And in the late 50s, he was asked to pose for the cover of Vogue magazine because he was running with James Dean a little bit. He started coming over to America, hanging out with the Hollywood movie stars. Could have wrote them some scripts. And then out of nowhere, Albert Camus died at the prime age of 46 years old in 1960. I mean, he's a fucking existential author. You know they say male depression peaks at 47 years old? We were one year away from Camus' best works. He died on a major highway in France, like an autobahn they have there, RN6, and it's just a notorious long stretch of highway, so maybe he was speeding, but the driver of the car was a ex-KGB agent. And the tombstone has been removed a hundred times. He's trying to be wiped from the face of history, Mr. Camus. KGB wasn't too a fan of him. That's the Soviet Union CIA. In the 50s, he was starting to write some anti-communist writings. So that was the end of Albert Camus at 46 years of age. But he left us with some great works. And we are starting off with the little 10 chapter, The Stranger. Chapter 1, No Way Out. Starts this, a very famous quote kicks off the book The Stranger. You might have heard it before, but it gives us a nice little peek into the mind of our main character, Merceau. Let me get into character. I'm going to light a little CBD ciggy. I know they smoke raw carcinogens over in France. We're getting a little CBD action here. All right, let me take a drag. I need more wine. Maman died today, or yesterday maybe. I do not know. 
Merceau does not know what day his mom died. It's sometime in that week. And the scene is set. Camus puts us in Merceau's office where he is getting the call from the nursing home that his mom has just passed away. So he has to tell his boss, who begrudgingly lets him take two days off to go bury his mother. And he uh, felt guilty to ask, so he doesn't exactly have the best work life. But Merceau gets the two days off. He immediately hops on a bus, riding out to see the nursing home where his mother was staying before she died. And the head nurse is there. She assures Merceau that his mother was uh, being given the best care possible, and she passed in a comfortable manner, considering the small income that Merceau had. She had to stick that on there. A nurse then took him down to the mortuary to see his mom's coffin, which they offered to open for him. But Merceau is... um. He's very passive, you'll see. We'll get to learn his character more throughout. But he says, no, why would I want to see the corpse of my dead mother? Why would I want that to be my last memory of her? So he says, keep the coffin closed. I'm going to go spend the night keeping a vigil over my mother's body. So through the night, Merceau stays up just in the uh, nursing home. And many nurses came by that were friendly with his mother. He was annoyed by all of their presence at first, but... Some of them started to grow on him. One of the nurses offered him a coffee to which Merceau traded her a cigarette. And so they were able to step outside all of this morning. This just dead weight being dropped on Merceau's head, having to leave his job making money to go bury his mom. He gets a second of fresh air or carcinogen tobacco-infused air with a lady trading coffee for cigarette. And he went back inside with the somehow with the caffeine and nicotine in his system, and fell asleep next to uh, the coffin of his mother. Friends come in, weep one by one until the next morning. And as Merceau awakes, he has to meet with the uh, funeral home director because um, this is the day they're putting her in the ground. To which, again, Merceau denies seeing the mother's body. A nice little discussion with the funeral director. Merceau finds out that his mom was fancying a man named Thomas Perez at the home before she passed. They became close friends, almost another love interest. People in the home joked about them being the fiancés of the house. They have a little procession around the town. You know how people clog up the roadways now, slam on the bunkers, put your hazards on when you're burying somebody because they would have wanted that. And as the procession goes, Merceau walks with The Undertaker. You know, the uh, WWE character. He was back in Algeria. The guy that's going to dig the hole for his mother, Merceau, inquired, was asking, did my mom have a good run in the home? I know you keep good watch over the place. And he goes, yeah, she lived to be an old woman. She seemed older than a lot of people in the home. And The Undertaker asked Merceau how old his mother was, which Merceau could not even answer. Mama died yesterday, or maybe today. I do not know. I do not know her age. I do not know her birthday. They're carrying the coffin, the undertaker, and Merceau, and Merceau's letting him know, I'm getting a little tired. It's a hot day, and I'm carrying this goddamn coffin around the town for no reason. And the undertaker tells him, If you go slowly, you risk getting sunstroke. But if you go too fast, you work up a sweat and catch a chill inside. And Merceau, always overdramatic, always over-interpreting what people are saying, responds, Ah, there is no way out. 
As for the rest of the procession and the funeral, Merceau remembered very little of, but he does remember Tom Perez weeping like a little bitch at his mom's funeral. He was the most... Everybody thought Merceau would be in tears. This is the last person he knows on Earth. Merceau doesn't have a wife or a girlfriend, and Merceau is stone-faced while this Perez guy, he's putting on an Oscar-worthy performance at the funeral. The waterworks are on. So here we are wrapping up the first chapter. Merceau is on a long, lonely bus ride home back to Algiers. But he says it's the happiest 48-hour bus ride thinking of all the sleep he has to come when he gets home. How is he this happy after he just buried his mother? So to start, we do see that Merceau has the ability to be happy. He's uh, not always this sad, passive person, nothing matters. He gets excited at little things. The whole thing of absurdism is you can enjoy the physical pleasures of life. It'll come up a little more in a bit. But these big things that are supposed to weigh on you emotionally, the death of his mother passed over him like nothing. We are on to chapter two, back in Algeria. We call this one Algerian Afternoons. Marceau is realizing after his long slumber much needed that it is Saturday and his boss was so mad about him having to ask two days off because it got him a four-day weekend. So it was a fucking Wednesday when he found out his mom died and he got Thursday, Friday off, four-day weekend, and his boss is all salty about it. Dude, your mom only dies once. <laughs> you get a two-week paid vacation every time your mom dies. That's not fair for people with lesbian parents. So Marceau has an extra day off. He decides to head down to the beach with his day. And there he's basking in the sun, taking in some of the joys of life that he's able to soak up. And he runs into one of his old co-workers, Maria Cardona. They hit it off. Nothing out of the ordinary. A big old, oh my god, we used to work together. How is all the old boss? Oh my god, you're still working there. And they go for a swim together. They're having a great time splashing each other. Merceau helps her up onto the dock to which their bodies slide against each other. This absurd reality, 24 hours ago he was burying his mother. And now a beautiful form of a woman, wet glistening from the sun is grazing against him as he helps her onto the dock their bodies touch they lay down together and just watch the clouds pass dry off he painted a whole like a half of chapter about being on the dock there with her again getting into that absurdist reality of still being able to enjoy the sensory inputs of life so they swim back to shore as they're drying off. Merceau asks Miss Clara to go see a movie, to which they both do, and to which they both forget the news about his mother dying. This was a very pleasurable day to Merceau already. He's not stewing in the death of his mother. They go to see a movie together. They see a comedy. They're laughing all night long. And then they go back to Merceau's and enjoy the rest of the night as the Algerian French culture would call for. Another big thing about the absurdism is the contrast. So very close, like in the timeline I'm saying within 24 hours he buried his mom and then got laid. The huge contrast of the depths of despair and then the heights of physical climax are fucking absurd. <laughs> Peaks and pits, highs and low. It is now Sunday, and Marie Clara is now gone before Merceau even wakes up. And like I was saying, Merceau doesn't want to stew in the death of his mother. He decides to pass up on his normal Sunday brunch spot 
in fear that everybody there, all the regulars, are going to be asking him about his mom. He's even scared. He doesn't want the interaction of people saying, I'm so sorry. What are you sorry about? Marceau, the deep thinker. What are you sorry about? My mom died. Everybody's mom died. You're not sorry. Let's just get a drink. Are you going to buy me a drink or not? Marceau spends the morning in bed and the afternoon, a nice Algerian afternoon, smoking on his balcony, eating some meats, fruits, charcuterie boards. He watches people walk down on the Algerian streets below, but he's never watching to judge. He just likes to pull back from himself and watch the larger flows of the people go about the streets. Later, as uh, we're getting towards dusk, he goes to the market, gets some fresh meats, some salted meats out in the streets, and uh, cooks them out on his porch, watches a nice little sunset, washes it back with some wine, and realizes, ah, another Sunday came and gone. I have buried my mother, but nothing has changed after all. I think I got a little Russian at the end there. It's because... Camus Camus is being a little sad boy. He's sliding into his um, Dostoevsky habits, getting a little too existential. Go be absurdist, bro. Take a girl to the beach and get over your mother dying. Monday rolls around, and he is back at work, indifferent at his boss's insincerity inquiring about his weekend. He hesitantly goes out for lunch with a co-worker, and uh, she asked if he was okay at that lunch, to which turned off Merceau. Merceau is always going... What does it matter if I'm okay? Why? Let's just enjoy lunch. What is this always how are you bullshit? Nobody cares. So deep, bro. Marceau got so tripped out by this question that he left Celeste at the cafe and went home to take a siesta for the remainder of his lunch. Nice little nap, finishes up the work day, and as he's coming home during sunset, he runs into his neighbor at the apartment, Salamano. He's an older guy, chilling on the stairs with his dog. Salamano walks his dog twice a day. They are both equally wrinkly and old dog. They're dying at the same rate. Merceau also passes Ramon Sintes in the stairs. The town thinks Ramon is a pimp. They think he's some dirty or stinkier than the normal Frenchman. He is involved with some dirty activity in the town. <clears throat> what Raymond actually does for a living, he's a warehouse guard. And in the stairway, Ramon invites Marceau to dinner, knowing that his mom just died. But Marceau is a smarter guy. He knows Raymond is acting a little more chummy than he ever has. We're just neighbors. We're not friends. And Raymond drops the line, I have a favor, but first, we're friends, right? <laughs> That's the worst. That's like when people say, can I ask you for a favor? How about you ask me for the favor first so I know what I'm getting myself into? Marceau says, of course, as the he's got nothing else going on. And Ramon immediately delves into this story about how he thinks his mistress is cheating. <laughs> his mistress is cheating. What is it called? A, a gumare. In Italy, you have a lady that your mistress. It's like socially acceptable. Ramon's mistress has a mistress. <laughs> this guy's life is totally out of control. The mistress's brother was an Arab guy that was fighting Raymond, and he was, like, threatening him in the streets. Is this really the crew that Marceau wants to be running with? Raymond asks Marceau, he said his plan is to write a letter to his mistress to make her feel guilty and to come back to him, but 
Raymon is more of a thug than he is a writer, so he asked Marceau to partake, put pen to ink for him. And he goes, make sure at the end of the letter, I want to say this to my mistress in the letter, the next time we have sex to make up, I'm going to spit in your face. What? What? I guess we're seeing into the dark mind or the sexual kinks of Albert Camus coming out in his early writings here. And Marceau did exclaim in the novel, he's a little not in favor of the spit take during a sexual encounter. Marceau agrees to write the letter. He is linked in to the crew, the crazy crew. They finish their dinner now that their little business talk is out of the way. And all day, they hear Solomon's dog crying outside. In the absurdist novel, all these little details are supposed to have a meaning. Crying dog outside with the old man, who the hell knows? Just more philosophy of the absurd. Never a normal day for Merceau, another Algerian afternoon. Chapter 3. You see how long I hold down these burps for? Surrealist daydream. Like Marceau's quote before, Another weekend come and gone, I have buried my mother, but what has changed? In this surrealist daydream, another week of Marceau's life goes by, and on the next Saturday, he has something to look forward to. He asks Maria Clara to meet at the beach once again. He described this surrealist daydream of a week, I said that people never changed their lives, that in any case one life was as good as another, and that I wasn't dissatisfied with mine here at all. So again, he's not dissatisfied, he's just the most gray, anamorph, nothing ever. (laughs) He pulls up to the beach, you got Maria already getting down to her skimpy bikini, and Merceau is saying I was aroused from the moment I laid eyes on her. I could not wait to hurry back to my apartment with her. They have a nice little day at the beach, and this time Marie stays over and she makes a little brunch for Merceau. And they have a beautiful morning. They're giggling all day, spending the morning in and out of bed. They're making fun of Solomon's dog, saying, how old is this dog? There's a famous line that comes out of this. They're having a beautiful day in bed. And uh, Maria Clara, she just couldn't help herself. She asked (laughs) the emotionless Merceau, do you love me, Madame Wissot? Responded in the novel, she asked me if I loved her. I told her it didn't mean anything, but that I don't think so. Merceau does not live life with the passion of a romantic. And, uh, you know, Maria was not very fond of this answer. <laughs> but what, what the fuck, man? You can't stay over someone's house the second weekend and ask them if they're in love already. Maria's got to lower her expectations. But again, just exposing Merceau's surrealist mind, inability to validate his or other people's emotions. Perfect timing, saved by the bell, Merceau is. They hear a big clamoring in the hallway, and there's a bunch of the residents from the apartment, and they are all gathered around Raymond's apartment, and they're all listening to what it sounds like. Let the bodies hit the floor. Let the butt. Raymond is putting the smack down on the cheating mistress, is what it sounds like. Police show up. They slap the cuffs on Raymond in front of the whole community. And they tell everybody, wait in your apartment and let Merceau know specifically you are going to be summoned by the police station. (laughs) One day, after trying to do a good deed for his neighbor, and he is already getting looped into the criminal underbelly of Algeria. So Marie goes home, the whole afternoon simmers down. Raymond 
was able to go to Marceau's apartment as well before the summoning and told Marceau, dude, I need you to testify for me on this one. You're my guy. You're my go-to. Remember, you said we were friends. <laughs> and Marceau goes, oh, what matters? Nothing matters. I will testify for you. So the two of them go out to drink in celebration, getting nice and hungover before their police summonings, and they deepen their friendship of one-sided favors. When they return late at night, another little absurdist synchronicity, Salamano this time is searching for his dog. His dog is lost, poor guy. He lost him at the parade grounds. And Merceau is telling him, go check out the pound tomorrow. This isn't the end. You'll probably find this dog. Make sure you bring some money, though. That always helps. Solomon tries to continue his stern face, cursing the dog. Oh, what a stupid pooch. Oh, no, no, no. But later that night, as they're all going to bed, Merceau can hear Solomon crying through the walls. That'll come up a little later. Plot goes on for Merceau. Next week, at work, a mutual friend of Raymond, Maison, asked Merceau if he wanted to bring Marie to his beach house. He's in a little bit of a high roller beach house coke-doing community now that he's running with the criminals. Raymond and his wife were going to be there as well. Merceau's got a little weekend plans. He's got something to look forward to in his dull life. And on this same day of what he considers to be such a bland existence, his boss, Marceau's boss, let him know, Buddy, there is an opening in Paris. I realize that this is not the most challenging job for you. Maybe a change of scenery can put a little more vitality back into you. And Marceau replied, It does not matter. I work here. I work there. Who cares? And the boss is pissed. He says, this is a lack of ambition, Merceau. Why don't you care about anything? And Merceau admits to his boss, I had ambition as a student once until I realized it didn't matter. That's (laughs) entire The Stranger pathology of Merceau summed up there. That's kind of the last we hear from the boss in the book, but... It shows like Marceau had several ways out. He could have been living another life in a different city that more suited his personality. But he just, his attitude of it is what it is, go with the flow, dude, will put him in a very dark situation at the end. Marceau does break this uh, news to Marie during the week. Hey, we could move to Paris, I guess, if you wanted. And she's happy to hear. But what Marie Clarone really wants to hear is that he wants to marry her. And she asked him again. So they're, what, three weekends in? The second week she's asking if uh, he loves her. And now she's asking if he wants to marry her. And Merceau, keeping it the same, didn't learn the first time, goes, What doesn't matter? We married. We are not. Who cares? (laughs) There was no Instagram to put your ring on back then. And Marie did try. She tried to backtrack. Maybe this was some sort of psyop by her to get him to admit to no love, no marriage, yes love. She asked again, but do you love me? Just say you love me, Marceau. Marceau says, why does it matter if I love you? (laughs) Smooth old Marceau. Oh, for two. Claire storms out. Merceau spends the night at Celeste's cafe as he normally would. 
and he sees a cutie there. Marceau going from breakup to new pursuit within one night. He saw this girl was checking off radio listings in her magazine. Marceau goes, oh no, she's a talker. What could there possibly be to talk about? I don't want to go up to her. He's fucking talking himself out of shooting his shot. But what he does, (laughs) this is shooting your shot in 2020. He follows her out of Celeste's cafe without saying anything and follows her a couple streets home. He said he eventually peeled off, but he was intrigued by this woman. Not intrigued enough to say hello, but they made eye contact. She will pop up later in the story. Spoiler alert. I don't just put these retarded details in for no reason. Trust. Again, comes back to the apartment and who's in the stairwells? Salabano, waiting for his dog, and Merceau inquires. He said, did you go to the pound, man? I told you, you could probably find your dog. Why are you so sad about this? Cutting the fat off of the steak, Salman admits he got the dog to fill the loneliness when his wife died. So he doesn't want to have to get a new dog and get used to all of its new nuances. He wants the old dog back. Kind of get what it's getting at here. Merceau, he fucking moved on. He blinked off the fact that his mother died. And then you got people like uh, Tom Perez weeping like a schoolgirl at the funeral. And Salamano, who will cry when his dog runs away, even though it's replacing his dead wife. He's not even thinking about her. Point is, people deal with death in these crazy different ways. He's on trial at the end for not showing enough mourning for his mother's death. Some people don't grieve by bawling and retching their stomach and wiping their eyes. So the chapter ended on the point of Solomon saying that the loss of the dog changed his life dramatically. Exact opposite, the theme of opposition in this absurdism to Verso's reaction about his mother's death. I friggin... <laughs> in my neighborhood, there was a bear growing up. And people obviously have pet bunnies. For some reason, one of my buddies, he kept his pet bunny outside in a cage. And big old hungry bear came and tore this metal cage apart. There's a video of it. I gotta, like, upload this to YouTube somehow. Definitely gore. And you can see the bear tearing apart Dusty, his pet bunny. And I remember I went over that morning to hear all about it, and his mom was crying. We were 12-year-old boys. We were like, we need to see the video of this bear tearing apart this bunny. We watched that nature porn all goddamn day while his mom cried over a bunny. And us men were getting, like, really happy over seeing the destructive force of nature. Absurd. Chapter 4. We are at the beach house. It is Sunday, beach day. Remember, Marceau was invited by Messon and Raymond. They're going to have a nice little reunion. Marie slept over Marceau's house that Saturday, and she had trouble waking Marceau up, which is a little out of the ordinary. Marceau is usually, usually, ordinarily, (laughs) a light sleeper. They all get their beach gear together. They bang on Raymond's door, and they all head down to the bus stop. But on the way to the bus stop, they pass a posse of Arabs. A very ominous-looking group that, for some reason, was giving Raymond and Merceau the stink eye all the way onto the bus. And Raymond goes, I'm not going to look over at that group, but you see the one that's giving us the stink eye in particular? That is my mistress's brother. He knows I beat her. That guy wants to kill me. (laughs) Merceau was like, ah, that adds up. Why were these crazy people staring at us? 
Raymond was all paranoid. He's like, yo, watch the front of the bus. Make sure they do not get on this bus. <laughs> We're going to get choked out all of the way to Champagne. Is Champagne a region? Definitely a Champagne branch. Joke checks out. Luckily, none of the Arabs get on the bus, but they didn't take their eye off the bus until it disappeared over the horizon. Not a good start to the morning. They all show up to Mason's beach house, a small little driftwood bungalow, more than most people could afford at the time. And Merceau meets Maison's wife. They take a liking to each other. Would have been natural friends, Merceau, the lover that he is. All morning, him and Marie caress each other out on their own private section of the beach. Finally, they have, doing a little more than a normal caress. The three couples meet back up for lunch at the bungalow. Escargo lunch, I guess they had. The women are cleaning up afterwards. Maison, Raymond, and Merceau go for a walk together. And on that walk, they notice they are being followed, to which a fight erupts out of nowhere. Turns out it's two Arabs, one of which look very familiar to Merceau and Raymond from earlier in the morning. They're slashing around with the knives. They miss Merceau completely, but Raymond tries to step in. They cut his arm and his cheek and then run away once the blood is drawn. It was an even match, a nice little... 2v2, Maison Raymond versus the Arabs. But they broke out their knives. They bought knives to a fist fight. They hobbled back to the bungalow in time to get a little first aid going. Mrs. Maison is crying. Marceau and Marie have to leave the house, let everybody get some air. Marie is nervous and wants to talk about it. She's like, you guys were just gone for 15 minutes. I was doing dishes and you come back with knife wounds? What the fuck happened? And Merceau is speechless. He goes, the sun, I am, I'm very, I'm very worn out. Just let me go for a smoke and walk by the sea. <laughs> it's like a breaking reporter who was on the scene and is like, can I just get a five minute break right now? We need to hear the details immediately. Turns all the way to late afternoon, Merceau is still smoking out on the beach. And Raymond is back from the hospital, all bandaged up. And he's going, where the fuck is Merceau? We should all probably be together now that we know that there's knife-wielding Arabs out on the streets of the town. Where is Merceau? Raymond goes all the way down to the beach, and he sees Merceau walking along, coming up on a hot spring that Raymond knows from being at Maison's beach house. And uh, Raymond, with his new uh, broken arm and stitched-up Joker-like face is wielding a gun. He took a gun down to the beach to go find Merceau, saying, we're not safe, let's go back home to the bungalow. But what they noticed trying to finish up their walk at the hot springs are two Arabs laughing at each other, celebrating their recent victory of stabbing a couple white Algerians. And Merceau notices Raymond is clutching the handgun. He's shaking out of anger, thinking about shooting the two Arabs. But then the Arabs see that they're being watched and scatter, run away behind some rocks like cockroaches. Merceau confiscates the gun, saying, You are unstable right now. We need to go back to the bungalow and forget about these guys. So they go back to the stairs of the beach house. Raymond goes back up to the women. And once again, Merceau needed to take a smoke and stare at the ocean. <laughs> so alone now, Merceau, for whatever reason, walks back to the hot spring alone. He is the only one there, so he gets a drink out of the hot spring water. He's having a good little time. 
until the Arab shows back up. The Arab guy is standing there within a few feet, and he pulls a knife out. It's supposed to be very shakily narrated because you're not supposed to have all the facts of the case here. But as the Arab guy pulled out the gun, Merceau says, I caught a ray of sunlight off of the blade from the Arab's knife. I was blinded and I pulled the trigger. He was clutching Raymond's gun. And as he got blinded by the Arab pulling out his knife, Merceau shot dead the Arab guy. As the Arab guy is dead... In our absurdist little reality and the non-linear mind of Merceau, he shoots four more bullets into the corpse of the Arab. So this could be like Camus trying to say that death happened a bunch of different ways. Maybe there was a knife fight and uh, Merceau had to shoot four times in order to wield him off. It's very shaky how the murder goes down. That's not supposed to be the point. The point is... One guy left that hot spring alive that day, and one guy was dead. And that brings us to the second part of the book, Chapter 5, The Big House. Merceau is promptly arrested the next day for the murder of the Arab. He is qualified as an indigent defendant on his cheap-ass salary where he gets reamed out for having a dead mother, and he gets a court-ordered lawyer for making so little money. It's a nice young lawyer. This is how most guys get the start in their legal career because there's no money in defending indigent people. You got to go do the corporate law where you're fucking fighting Twitter versus Facebook and just siphoning money off of corporate tax subsidies. This young lawyer seems to know a thing or two. He lets Merceau know the prosecutor's angle. I spoiled it a little bit before, but they are going to dive into your personal life, Merceau. This is not a fact-finding case. They are going to pursue and tarnish your character. He knew the prosecutor was going to his mother's funeral home, her old age home, and asking people, how did Merceau react the day of his mother's death? They're collecting circumstantial evidence, which doesn't hold up in a modern courtroom. That's it's hearsay. That's like saying, well, the girl went out in a tube top. She deserved to get raped. That's fucking circumstantial. It had nothing to do with the case and how someone was aggressed against. So the defense lawyer, you know, you're not supposed to lie to your own lawyer, but <laughs> he's hoping Rousseau will ham it up for him. He goes, were you sad? Did you cry the day of your mother's funeral? What was going through your mind, Merceau? And Rousseau goes, well, I don't usually analyze myself. Defendant goes, well, you loved your mother, right, Merceau? We've heard this one before, and Merceau says, eh, I probably didn't love my mother. Not that it means anything. Merceau holds no value in love. It's going to be hard to win a court case where you're being tried on whether or not you loved somebody. I would hate to be the defendant having uh, fucking Merceau as your client right now. Because, I mean, I have a fucking criminal justice degree where we took some real law classes with, um, I took like the attorney general of Delaware's law class. We went over some fucking in-depth court cases, son. And what we learned, what you really hear, base level knowledge, the OJ trial, the courtroom is a theater, baby. I've been reading uh, Plato's Apology and like these old Greek Parthenon trials. It's all showmanship and rhetoric that gets you off in the courtroom. 
So you don't want Merceau as a client who's not even going to say I loved my mother. He is way too fucking real. He's a real ass dude. He will not even... <laughs> he. <laughs> it's not a phase, mom. I freaking hate you, mom. Till the end, even if he is in a life or death situation. This kid is goth. Not a great start <laughs> for Merceau in the legal system. Later in the day, he's uh, taken to the examining magistrate, so like the prosecuting side. And they also ask if he loved his mother. And Merceau said, eh, I loved her as much as anybody. Which is a nice little two-meaning phrase. I loved her as much as anybody. Which could mean, yeah, I fucking loved her as much as I loved my butcher and the milkman. Or, I loved her as much as anybody loved my mother. What do you mean? So again, the ambiguous writing style of absurdism that an English teacher would get a perpetual boner for. You could probably have, though, an entire like series, seasons upon spinoffs... Of this absurd concept of this super existential kid in the courtroom. It's a fucking insane sitcom of a concept where a kid doesn't care about his life that has to defend it. Doesn't go well with the prosecutors, obviously. And um, the magistrate actually gave Merceau the title, Monsieur Antichrist. They think the devil is possessing Merceau because he's... Not the standard deviation. It's like they just resort to fucking religious explanation in the old days. Burn the witches. Even in the fucking um, Scarlet Letter case, the girl, she likes to have sex. <laughs> she gets labeled a charlatan, a creature from hell. This is what happens in these older novels. They kind of just resort to the mass consensus in the courtroom. So a little societal observation from Camus there. Luckily, within the first month, Marie did come to visit Merceau, locked up. Merceau did say something interesting to uh, Marie. He actually had something to offer. He's like, I've seen a lot of Arab people in the prison here. I mean, I don't really, I'm not as scared of them as I was after... They almost killed me and my friends. So uh, maybe it's showing Merceau has the ability to learn, or like maybe he could one day find the love for life. He slides back into his normal ways. Merceau notices that Marie is forcing a smile in the prison visitor room, and he's like, why are you forcing a smile? Just act how you'd like to be. And she's going, Merceau, well, I'm not just doing this to fit into societal standards. You got to have a little bit of hope. When you're fucking locked away in a prison cell awaiting trial for death. It's that psychological idea. Camus is all up and involved with those writers. The idea of if you keep smiling, eventually it's going to feed back into your persona. Wait, oh, I actually am happy right now? Why am I smiling? Like, if you just positively reinforce your brain, it's going to start a better feedback loop. Merceau, <laughs> Camus, he was running around with Aldous Huxley who first-handedly got LSD from Albert Hoffman, the guy who synthesized it. So uh, my point, he was running around with a crew that the CIA and the KGB would like to see the end of, to which they did very successfully. But not before Camus was able to trash the legal system in these final chapters. Camus had hope until the end, just like Merceau here when visiting Maria. And how Merceau would pass time in the cell, now that he's in solitary confinement, he said that he would pretend 
to walk around his apartment, imagine every little detail, and for majority of the day, pretend he was sitting on his balcony, watching the flows of people go by, putting his index and middle finger to his lips, pretending he's smoking a cigarette in his cell. And there was one story about he used to, like, take paper clippings, which they gave him to wipe his ass with, and he would, like, take them together and make different stories out of it in his cell. And one day he was trying to relive one of the stories he made up, and Rousseau realized he was speaking out loud. And he's like, oh, my God, I've been in here for months. I don't even know which stories I've made up, which stories I've been saying out loud. Am I even talking to myself? He's losing his fucking mind. That takes us to chapter six this one's called break a leg it is the following summer and Merceau's trial is underway he is surprised at how many people are attending his case but it figures it's summer it's slow season for uh court cases <laughs> how funny is that the only entertainment that people used to have like we're the court case of the town that's like dude this is the french to kill a mockingbird this book or um, beheadings used to be the entertainment for the town. And Summer, just like a, just like Fox and CNN and all your favorite shows, Summer is the slow season. We're not putting entertainment out. My point is we need to start hanging more people in the public square <laughs> during the slow seasons. At the hearing, even the radio programming girl that Merceau followed around town and into Celeste's cafe was there. So she recognized him from that night from trading glances and saw him in the paper. This is a very high-profile case. The judge begins by asking Merceau why he put his mother in a home. I love this. You ever hear... Like, we look down on Asian people for eating dogs. How crazy are they, guys, for eating those animals? Why the fuck do we put our senior citizens, our mothers, our family members in homes? That's what the Asian people look at us like. They're like, what? Yeah, we eat dogs. Why the fuck are you pushing dogs in strollers in New York and then treating your parents like cattle? The judge is giving a little bit of this to Merceau to kick the case off, starting him off in a hole. Merceau, smart guy, goes, I didn't have the money to care for my mother. You saw I'm an indigent defender. And so the judge immediately goes to character analysis. He goes, ah, but this tormented you, Merceau, that your mother was in a home, right? It tore away at your being that you didn't have enough money to put her somewhere better. Merceau goes, well, my mother knew I didn't have the money or the means to work to get it, so, you know, we both got accustomed to our arranged living. And the judge immediately slamming the gavel down. That's too rational of an answer. You are Monsieur Antichrist. <laughs> so the dumber people in the jury are going, Yeah, fuck him, he's the devil! Their Sunday night parish game was postponed for this court case. You better insert some religion into the show. So it's very obvious to the judge at the beginning of the case within the first two answers that Merceau didn't have some big revelation within solitary confinement. They had the director of the home, the defense called to the stand, to uh, testify to, for Merceau. They were going, Merceau would visit regularly. He was always concerned and would call in about his mother. The director was like, I know that Merceau, he cared about his mother, but this motherfucker never showed an emotion. So what do we weigh as a society? Is it enough to care about someone or you have to show with your emotions, with your mask that you care as well? 
But when the, uh, like the judge obviously knew all the facts of the case, he is directing the narrative of the courtroom of the show. And the judge goes, well, yes, funeral director, but, uh, is it right that Merceau didn't ask to see his mother's body? And so they were like, yeah, I mean, that is factually correct. And so the judge is like, all right, let's get the undertaker up here on the stand. And so remember that uh, conversation with the undertaker in the beginning when Merceau admitted to him that he didn't know his mother's age? That does not look good in a courtroom when you're on trial for your life. So at this point, Merceau is the most hated man in the courtroom already within the first three witnesses. He basically has no chance to win, which he knows And they haven't even started asking him about the murder of the Arab. This has absolutely nothing to do with what got him into the prison. They are just putting people's character on trial for funsies and to reinforce the standards of society, the religion, all that back then. And so Merceau, he knows he's not going to win. He's going within his brain and starting his own narrative up again. And he had this cool thought about very absurdist existential thought going... Well, I've gotten to this point, and I really haven't given myself, my ambition, up to anything. Like he said, after being a student, he gave up his ambition. He's saying, since I didn't find meaning for life, life didn't give me a meaning. In the words of semi-sonic, baby, you get what you give. That's like anything. You've heard, the energy you put out in the universe is the energy you get back, man. This transcends one philosophy. This is like an idea of many religions, a lot of literature. The defense gets to call a couple witnesses at the end. Celeste, the owner of the cafe that Merceau always went to, said he is a really good man. Merceau, he's never too forward on women at the cafe. He's always just hanging around, tipping big. He is a good addition to this community. People like when they see him at the cafe. So this is like the only character witness that Merceau has, the only person that could stand up for him. And he holds zero weight. And the jury, the entire courtroom, basically laughs it off. Next, they call up Maria Clara to the stand, who lied a little bit for Merceau. She said, Merceau was asking me to marry him. We were about to move to Paris with a new job and get married. Why would he marry an Arab? Marie, trying to put the narrative back on the court case, what everybody is there for, and lying a little bit, saying he had hope. It's like when kids get involved in the criminal justice system, when they start getting fucking tacked down, their life ruined. You got to prove to the judge that you have shit going on. Otherwise, they think you're a menace to society. And so Maria was actually starting to sway the crowd back towards Merceau. But the judge, again, has the gavel. He has the plot line. Says, well, I have uh, received word that on your first date, 24 hours after Merceau's mother died... You went to see a comedy at the movies. That night, after they went to the beach, slid their bodies on each other on the dock and went to see a movie and had sex, they saw a comedy that night. And the judge is going, Merceau should have been mourning. He definitely shouldn't have been at the beach. And he went out to laugh. And again, this brings up the polarities of absurdism. You have to have extreme disparity to have the apex of comedy there is no humor without drama you know Merceau had some of the best laughs at that movie that night with Marie Clara next on the stand they call up Messon and he tries to speak on behalf of Merceau 
doesn't go well. He talked about how Merceau is always kind to the neighborhood dogs. Raymond goes last. He tries to explain how Merceau should have never been involved with this web of people. It's already a week in when he's involved in a gang turf war. The judge knows that Raymond is the town uh, thug. People don't look at him as a credible source, so the judge dunks on him. He's like, this good friend over here, the one with such good morals, you mean the one who wrote a letter for you about spitting on a girl? <gasps> the whole courtroom is taken aback. Masson, Raymond, they're both off the stand. Marie Claire is off the stand. Marceau is dead in the water. The prosecutor did allude to, we're into the closing statements now, Merceau has a high intelligence which leads to his lack of remorse. This is the sign of a premeditated murder. So he's trying to say that Merceau went to the beach with the intentions of killing some random Arab guy because Merceau doesn't show remorse. Just tacking on extra charges, extra years. And the prosecutor goes before closing, You know the next case we have today is about a man killing his poor mother. He goes, These are the men, Merceau, this next defendant. These are the men who will erode the backbone of our society. Very tricky idea from the prosecutor. He's conflating the two cases. Merceau has nothing to do with this guy who killed his mom who's on trial next. But it looks like they're both on the same team. The prosecutor calls for the death penalty for Merceau. He wants to use Merceau as an example to pave the way for men who kill their parents. And Merceau gets to say some final words to the courtroom. Probably lights a cigarette in the middle of the judicial building. I had no intention of killing Ziarab when returning to the beach. Judge goes, then why did you do it? Merceau blurts out, because of the sun! So everyone thinks Merceau is crazy. What does he mean because of the sun? Remember he got blinded by the light? Arab pulled out his switchblade. Bruce Springsteen was playing at the hot spring. Violence ensues. Lawyer went up, tries to save face for Merceau, not uh, putting on a big show for everybody in the closing statement, and recounts the day from Merceau's perspective. He just went to a random beach house and got involved in a murder. This isn't his fault. And during this speech, Merceau is again letting his mind water, wander, zones back in when the judge is slamming the gavel down, finding him guilty of premeditated murder, and of course, sentenced to death, and for the premeditated, he gets death by guillotine. Courtroom scenes are supposed to give you reassurance in literature. You want to see the bad man go away? Not here, Cavus. Why ever he sent out those four extra shots... He's paying for it. Chapter 7, our final chapter. It is a few days after Merceau's trial, and his only desire is to escape the machinery of the justice that has condemned him. We have a quote from the mindset that he is almost at his premature death. For the first time in that night, alive with the signs and stars, I opened myself to the gentle indifference of the world. For everything to be consummated for me to feel less alone, I had only to wish that there be a large crowd of spectators, spectators the day of my execution, and that they greet me with cries of hate. He's happy to see there's going to be a lot of people there for his death. What's that... Quote, I hope my death means something more than my life. Very macabre, but that's what Merceau is embracing. And he goes, it's going to be a show. <laughs> I know a lot about these uh, 
guillotines. He said his town guillotine was bolted down. It had a stone base. So there's a good chance that he gets a clean cut on the first time, which he's happy about as well. Doesn't want to suffer going out. He remembers a story that his mother would tell him. And his mom thought it was a horrible fate. His mom was like, me and your father used to go to executions. And I remember your father throwing up in the streets. It's very disgusting. So Merceau is also hoping he gets a good executioner. People used to like bribe the executioner to make it an easy death. Every day that passed by while he was holed up. He was grateful to not hear the boots coming to his cell. So that, along with his quote before, for everything consummated, I felt less alone. He might have found a little bit of love of life, <laughs> being relieved that he's not dying that day. The chaplain, the priest of the prison, was going, why didn't you come to visit me, Merceau? I think you should probably find God before you meet your death. And uh, Merceau again goes, why would I do that? I don't believe in God. And the chaplain tells him, that is the attitude of extreme despair. Merceau admits, one of the deepest points I'll say out loud, I'll admit I'm afraid, but unlike most people, I'm not desperate. I'm not going to start sending out Hail Mary messages to a floating man in the sky just because I'm scared. The chaplain condemns Merceau. He's eternally damned. Again, we're being dragged up to the big guillotine. Merceau has visions of his mom fading in the crowd. He's starting to have a bunch of revelations while his neck is cozied up into that wood guillotine slot before a giant blade comes down. He uh, is thinking about Solomon and his dog, and we had that revelation before. The guy bought the dog to replace his wife. He's thinking about his mom and Thomas Perez, and he's going, Oh, I understand why they had their late-life love affair there. They were trying to feel alive again, something I never experienced as Merceau, he never felt that, unless he was on the beach with Marie Claire, apparently. And this is supposed to be Camus saying that in these final moments, Merceau is developing his consciousness, but he's never going to be able to wedge God like the chaplain wanted him to into that rational brain of his, this absurd reality. A guy pulled a knife on him while he was drinking water at a hot spring, and now he's being executed in front of everybody he's ever known. Again, he retreats to his thoughts, thinking about all the spectators, and death is an inevitable fact of life. Sad ending by Camus's Camus' first book, That is the Stranger. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. Thank you for staying tuned. We are back on a regularly scheduled program here on the show. June 1st, we are taking a trip. That's what you do during June. Our trip is going inwards with Timothy Leary, the psychedelic experience. He breaks down. This guy has had hundreds of psychedelic breakthroughs. He's a psychonaut, an explorer of his mind like an astronaut. He has written down, if you never want to take part in these chemicals, he writes down the seven bardos, the different steps you go through among this journey. It's going to be a crazy experience, just like we had Conscious last week, Annika Harris. This is a big step up. Timothy Leary's done time at the CIA. He turned on more minds in America in the 1960s than the electric Kool-Aid acid test people. This guy 
he reformed prisoners' minds with these chemicals. It's going to be a trippy show. There's going to be crazy visuals just like we had a few weeks ago. Thank you guys again for our first Albert Famous. I cannot wait for more of these. I'll see you next time. For now, this is Nick Muniz. Peace.